Father, we thank you for this time we can gather before you. Lord, we are in your presence always, but we are especially conscious of your presence as we gather together under the word of God in the church of God. I pray, Father, that you would help me to be faithful to the text. Help us, Lord, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches throughout all the scriptures. And in this passage, Lord, make it clear to us. Encourage our hearts. Help us to feed upon the great promise that you have made to humanity. And you have never broken a single promise. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to uh, turn to Genesis chapter 9, and we're looking at uh, verse 18 to, uh, to 21, 29, and uh, I have to admit, when Nathan invited me to come and preach this Sunday morning, and then he told me the passage that I was going to be preaching, I thought, okay. And I am aware there are children present. But you know all of God's word is equally inspired. And this is as much the word of God as the red letters in your Bible, your red letter edition. So we want to both be faithful to it, but not be afraid to hear what God has to say. I'd like to start by reading Genesis 9, 18 to 29, and um, here's what God's word says. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. You notice that. And he goes on to say, these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, and he became drunk, and he laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Jacob, of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and they walked backward and cov covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. Notice that. Their, they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and don't miss the last phrase, and he died. God bless his word. And God bless it to our minds and our hearts as we consider uh, what God has for us in it. 
When I first read this, though I too believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of all of Scripture, I swallowed hard and I thought, and I thought to myself, you know, there, there's a temptation when you read difficult passages of Scripture to want to rush in your thinking to somehow rescue God. Did he really mean what he recorded here? Or to somehow kind of tone it down a little bit? Um, God never needs rescuing. What he says he means. And uh, forbid the thought in my own mind that somehow I would need to scale down what the Lord had to say. I'm going to let it speak for itself. And I would just as soon defend a lion in Africa as I would to try to defend Yahweh. Amen? We are standing before the Word of God and the presence of God, and we know that God means what is recorded here. Now picture the scene. God had just, Noah had gotten off the boat, he and the family, and God had wiped out all of the existing world. And only a handful survived. The family, Noah, the family, these sons who he talks about here, they are all the, they're all that is left. And they had just gotten off this big barge with all these animals floating around there for over a year long. So the setting is kind of fascinating. It's, you talk about a unique human experience. <laughs> you talk about a bonding time. <laughs> floating in a confined environment with a look what we would consider to be a collection like a zoo. And here you are with the fam doing this for a year. Um, this is got to be seen, not as a standalone story, but in the flow of redemptive history. That what God is doing in recording this event, after he had wiped out all of humanity, minus the ones who were on board, he's now beginning something new. I like what... Um, a book by Ian Smith, Not Home Yet. He talks about the significance of what God created in this world and God's intention in history moving forward. He said, the opening verse of the Bible is breathtaking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From this all-encompassing canvas, he says, the focus of Genesis narrows. The earth, Genesis 1-2, that's where it narrows. This begins with what will become a recurring pattern of the earthward direction of the scriptures. You hear that. As Ian points out, the earth appears to be at the center of God's creation. Even the sun and the moon exist for the benefit of dividing time on earth between day and night. Fascinating when you kind of think of it that way. And it is an anti-Copernican revolution. Everything revolves around the earth in that sense. Now, uh, Sarah and I have frequent discussions about is there other intelligent life in the earth? And you know it's in the news every day, right? Um, absolutely there's intelligent life in the universe, but it's not what our culture thinks it is that you notice God 
is going to put the earth at the center of his revelation as to what he's doing. And who does he make out of all the animals and living creatures he made that are many are intelligent. In fact, I've had some dogs that were smarter than some, well, I won't mention names. <laughs> that God made many intelligent creatures, but he only called one an image bearer. And that kind of draws it in real close and tight. God had not only a design, but an expectation of the uniqueness of male and female and the uniqueness of hum humanity as reflecting an original. They were there. We're not the original. We are reflecting the original who is Yahweh himself. And so the Trinity pauses in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and simply says, let us, notice the plural, uh, we're listening, we're eavesdropping on a conversation in the person among the persons of the Trinity talking to one another. And they're saying, you know, we made all this stuff, we made this planet, we made, uh, we, we put this as the focus of what we're doing here in the created order, matter now exists, but God is saying, let us, there's a consulting of the Godhead, if you will, and God Almighty talks to God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, let them have dominion. So growing out of, of who God is and then who he made us to be, he expected us and created us with great dignity to reflect his nature differently than anything else he had made. And so there you see how things very quickly narrow in. You see that. And um, the cosmos, which was created by him and for him, there's nothing left. I, I love what Francis Schaeffer said. I heard him say this years ago. He said, you know what's unique about God is when he makes the stuff? He says, there's nothing left hanging outside. He said, we used to have a, he said, uh, Schaefer talked about Labrie. He said, we had a trash can and you got everything in the cr trash can. He said, bad analogy, but I got his point that he's saying there's nothing left hanging outside. And so this God awareness, God glorifying reason why the stuff exists and you and I exist as image bearers is because God is a great God of holiness and dignity. So when I mentioned to you, Sarah and I, when we discuss intelligent life, the angels are intelligent life and they show don't look like a lot of us in this room and some of their appearances, do they? And, and, but, but God goes on to say in Hebrews 2, he says, uh, quoting from the Old Testament, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to begin, to come, of which we are speaking, for it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And yet he goes on to talk in the next paragraph about Jesus. 
In other words, Jesus is the second Adam who is going to do the something quite different than the first Adam did in his defiance and rebellion against Almighty God. Which, by the way, is what set in motion the narrative that we are now reading today. That what set in motion was Adam created moral anarchy and defiance in the face of Almighty God and said, I will not be who you made me to be. I have a better idea. And it got him in big trouble. And that sin definitely so spread like a cancer across all of humanity in the book of Genesis that the, the, the world got so bad, God said, I regret that I made them. Not that God ever, we know God doesn't change. But God does express a sense of convulsion over the violent, sinful nature of human beings. So when we come then to what happens in, in the, the, the moment we pick this text up where Noah's gotten off the ark, now we're dealing with kind of Adam 2.0. But I would call him Adam 2.0 because 2.0 is just another version of the same, if you think of a computer, but think of a man. Adam 2.0 is still a continuation of a broken person. But God is setting in motion through this man, who is this Adam 2.0. He's not the second Adam. That second Adam is going to be not 2.0. It is not just an improved version. It is a holy, pure, God-appeared-in-man's-flesh version that says, I am going to change everything. I am God, God Almighty in man's flesh, the Incarnation. So until he arrives, which is where history is going, and this is where this passage is running our eyes already, where this is going is that God simply says in, in his covenant that, that he makes in Genesis 6, 18. I'm wanting you to see the flow here. God's covenant flood plan, if you will. That kind of sounds like an insurance policy, doesn't it? Well, I'm not talking an insurance policy, but I am talking about God giving a thing called a rainbow sign. He calls it a sign. It was, it was something that he expressed to Noah. He said, I will establish my covenant with you, speaking to Noah. And by the way, this is the first time the Hebrew word appears in the Old Testament, berit. Berit, he says, I am going to make a covenant with you, but it's not just with you, and it's not going to be a covenant like other covenants that focus on redemption stuff. He's saying something unique in this covenant, that you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife. And then he goes on to say in chapter 9, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature. Then he says, no longer, never again will I destroy the earth by water. Okay. So what's the point of that covenant? 
not, it's not redemptive in the sense like the other ones are. It is this. God says, I promise you, I will never destroy this world. It will continue until what we know is going to be the eschatological end, the consummation of all things. So the planet is going to exist and continue on. For what purpose? It's the stage. It's the place. It's what God is going to do. He's going to now accomplish on, yes, a sinful planet, His redemptive purposes. It's his way of saying, I'm coming for you, not to leave you in your brokenness as you are. I'm coming for you because I'm going to make you something different. Is this cool or what? Huh? Come on. I know it's a Presbyterian church. (laughs) This is amazing that God has begun with Noah, who is Adam 2.0, There's everything changed, and there's a sense in which nothing changed. And and by the way, God, thank you for telling us, telling Noah, that you weren't going to burn down the whole house over and over again every time we sinned, whether we sinned corporately or like they did then. But remember, it started with one. Well, guess what? The sin continues here. And it's... It's, in a sense, the one again, isn't it? (laughs) And and so if God judged immediately every time we sinned individually, we'd have a whole lot of flooding going on around here. And I know you had a big flood a few years back, and it messed with Nashville pretty bad, didn't it? Well, uh, God doesn't, he's not going to destroy like he did before. Not until the very end. He's going to remake things. And transform everything. And, uh, you know, I mean, you can look at Noah. We're looking at Noah. You could look at David. You could look at all the people in the Bible, apart from Jesus, who failed so many times. So, all that to say, if Noah is 2.0 of Adam, it is a new beginning, but it is not completely a new beginning. There's still a continuation in the start of you're down to a small family again and all of humanity is going to come from that now we read it verses 18 did you notice the sons of david uh, i'm sorry of noah went forth from the ark and he names them shem ham and japheth but why does he say ham was the father of canaan why would he mention that at this point what why because the canaanites don't exist yet What he's telling us is, I'm telling you, this story has a point. It's going somewhere in redemptive history. Which runs our eyes back to Genesis 3.15 when God first made that promise to Adam and Eve after they sinned that I am going to create a division, the, the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, And going forward in history, that's going to cast that shadow all the way until Messiah comes. So, the sap of this new tree that has begun with Noah 2.0, Adam 2.0, is still polluted by sin. And I think that's part of what we see here. But that's not the point. It's, we're looking at like an online version in the Bible, if you will, of Ancestry.com before there is 
a, a lineage to be had. It's predictive. We hadn't all been born yet, but it's going somewhere. And so God is prophetically announcing through Noah in his drunken state, now recovering and getting his hangover out of the way. It's Noah who predictively is saying something. Notice the words, from these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So there's nobody in this room, myself included, none of us who are not here because of this story. So we're, there's a lot of interest in genealogies and identities. Look at this one. And so when it says dispersed, as I work through the Hebrew, I found it really interesting. Nitzach, kol ha'aretz. Nitzach is a, it is a, it is a cow verb that in this context is saying this, and this surprised me. Listen to the dictionary meanings of the, the lexicon meanings, to be beaten and sunder, to break in pieces, to be broken, to dash something down. It's a term of violence, to disperse, to scatter, not necessarily by choice. You get that. I mean, doesn't that surprise you? It surprises me to read that, that these three sons are our great-grandparents somewhere back up the line. And he's saying that I'm going to dash, I'm going to force, I'm going to violently begin to thrust these people out. So here's Noah then in the, in the story. Uh, he's given up the boat construction business. That came to a conclusion. There was no need for him to do another version of that. And, I, you know, I, you realize Noah tells us lived to be, what, 950 years old? When you live to be 950 years, you've got some time to learn new traits and skills. Seriously. I mean, really. You know, I mean, we, you know, what do we got? Maybe 80, 90 years old, you know, medical, self does to extend that somewhat. Um, but... 950 years, and he was at the 350 mark when he got off the ark. <laughs> so he's got some time to do some pretty creative things. And do you know what he does? He goes right back to what Genesis, what God said to Adam, that you are to do what? You are to um, subdue the earth and, and show us stewardship of it and develop it. This, he goes right back to this, and so he says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered, which later on the word naked is the word used. And that's why when I first read this, I thought, oh, great. How do you preach a sermon on that? Well, it would not make sense if you don't see it as part of God telling us the honest to goodness truth of what happened here and what he did with that. When, when he then gives, as we read earlier, the blessing and the curses, notice then the original cultural mandate he's now doing by, he says, I think I'll do, this looks like an interesting fruit and I will develop a vineyard. 
And then he learns how to make something out of those grapes because they didn't have refrigeration. Um, so you have the Lord telling us what happened, but notice he drank. But he goes further. It then uses the Hebrew word um, that he, uh, he became a man ha of the ha-adamah. Adam is Adam, Adam. Adama is ground. God took Adam out of the Adama. There's a play on words here. And so he went right back to his roots, Adama. And he's growing this vineyard, but he literally, the word shahar is the word to get tipsy. He'd had one too many. It kind of hit me as I thought about this that um, Noah embarked as an entrepreneur on a new project, but sometimes entrepreneurial projects are not always, don't finish well. Well, whatever happened here, he got drunk. And he's in the tent, and his son comes in. I like what one commentator says. Genesis does not stop to moralize on Noah's behavior. It is neither condemned nor approved. To be sure, wine was not forbidden in Israel. It was used to cheer the heart, Judges 9.13. It was used as a sedative, Proverbs 31.6, when used properly. But here he is, and the Bible doesn't camp out on it. God doesn't even make a comment pro or con about what he just told us that Noah got drunk and was naked. What he then immediately does is he moves to the response of the three sons. And so we want to go where God's word takes us. What did Ham do? Ham comes in and he did nothing to help his dad. He walks in, a, it's a whoops moment, if you will. He walks in, and I tried to look at what was going on there in the choice of the words in the Hebrew, but he says, uh, when it says, veyara, that he says, he looked. What's the looking? It means to gaze, to see, to perceive, to have regard, to pause, observe something. It wasn't just a casual glance. You don't get that sense. It was that he walks in, finds dad in a compromised situation. And he must have spent some time just gazing. But whatever went through his mind, the Bible doesn't tell us. But what he did is what it tells us. He says he stepped outside the tent and he announced to his two brothers, the, Greek, the Hebrew word there is in the hyphial form of the verb, which key, gives you the idea of recounting something almost with an intensity. Listen to what, he, what it means. To manifest, to announce, to proclaim, to expose. It's used, for instance, in some occasions to rehearse something. My brothers and sisters, he didn't help dad. He did not treat dad with dignity and respect, which he deserved. All he simply was doing was stepping out and announcing what they were unaware of.
man by John Calvin. John Calvin read this and he wrote these words. We know that parents next to God are most deeply to be revered. And if there were neither books nor sermons, nature itself constantly inculcates this lesson upon us. And it is to be received with common consent that piety towards parents is the mother of all virtues. This ham, Calvin says, must have been of a wicked, perverse, and crooked disposition, since he not only took pleasure in his father's shame, but wished to expose him to his brethren. Now, I don't know if Noah, if, if even Calvin can prove all of that, but I think he's right in one thing. You show dignity to your parents. And so he says, it is no slight occasion of offense that Noah, the minister of salvation to men, the chief restorer of the world, should in his extreme old age lie intoxicated. Now, why did he mention Canaan? Did you notice that? Does anybody know who Canaan was? There was Noah, then there was his son. Who was Canaan? He was the son of the son who came in and stared at dad. And whatever is going on in the text, Noah does not pronounce that curse on the other sons of Ham. He only singles out the one and specifically says Canaan. Canaan was the father in the lineage. It's going to come out in the next chapter, the father of the Canaanites. And so what you have going on is very simple. I, when I, I studied a year, I lived in Israel, Sarah and I, for over a year, studied under Israeli archaeologists Gabriel Barkai, Anson Rainey, um, American archaeologist, and crawled all over places. I read hundreds and hundreds of pages of ancient Canaanite prayers to their gods. I got inside their liturgy. I tried to understand how the Canaanites thought. And my brothers and sisters, as I looked at the artifacts in the museums and what was found on sites, I was, I got it. It was a decadent, baby-killing culture that was, was just like the pre-flood era. It was so perverse, full of homosexuality. They had prostitution in the temples. It was everything that was wrong in a worship of God. We talked about the warning Joshua gave of idolatry. Here it was. And so whatever was going on there, this was what was going to lead to a culture like what we find. Those were the ones who so strongly opposed and tried to, to destroy the people of Israel. And so my brothers and sisters, when we read these words, that was the curse and the action of this man, his son, that changed a whole world. Now, so we know sin continues. 
But what did Shem and Japheth do? You've read it. I want to see, focus on, you know, they pick up the cloak. They hear the report. They do what the other brother never did. They show respect and dignity and back in backwards and cover dad. They cover his shame. Do you realize what a picture of the gospel that is? That is just like what God did in clothing Adam and Eve with the skins of the animals. And so what I found interesting is the Hebrew word that um, is used here, kasa, is the word that is used directly, consistently throughout the Old Testament for atonement. What a beautiful picture of the gospel, that the atonement is this, that they back in, and it means to clothe, to conceal, to atone for, is to cover over the sin. They care for their dad, and they actually, almost as it were, using the priestly terminology of sacrifice, they cover their dads nakedness and so that's when Noah wakes up he curses he curses not uh, not the son who came in and looked and published his dad's error he cursed his son Canaan and notice the two things that then come out loud and clear that he says cursed be Canaan May he be a servant of servants. And then he says, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Shem is where we know Abraham descended. And so just want you to see how all this begins to tie together. What does God do with these prophetic statements? God used all of the above, all the sinful actions of men and the proper actions of the two sons who redemptively tried to restore and protect dad in his sinful brokenness. In the narrative, we find a picture of where this is going, that it is going to be through Shem and Japheth. And we're going to see the messianic line will come through Shem. What a story. <laughs> God has factored in, in his narrative of redemption, all our sins. Nothing ever catches God by surprise. But God takes even our sinful actions and he uses that for his purpose. So when we read the context of these events, then I want to finish with just two passages of scripture. I go back to what happened before Noah. The entire narrative is a narrative about, I'm going to keep this planet intact. I'm going to accomplish redemption on this planet. I'm going to use broken, sinful people specifically through the line of these sons to bring my Messiah to you. And he's not gonna do this overnight. So this is the long haul. So in Genesis 3.21, if we run backwards, we read, And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He covered them in their shame and their guilt. And then he turns around 
And he says through the prophet Isaiah, long after Noah had died, Isaiah 61.10, please receive this as God's benediction. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. For my soul, says Isaiah, will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Amen? And that is what God does. What God does is he takes what is a curse, and he doesn't leave it as a curse. But he ends up bringing out of a curse, you got it. A blessing. What an amazing thing. Lord, I want to thank you. Thank you for what is a difficult story, but it is so biblical and so much reminding us that our sin never catches you by surprise and that you are so sovereign and so gracious that you take even our brokenness and you make something of it. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.